Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks to come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw. And we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by theology in the raw, you can join the theology in the raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. The link is in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. James Merritt, uh, pastor of Cross Point Church and former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has a Master of Divinity degree and also a PhD from uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And James and I actually got to know each other just over the last couple of years through his son, Jonathan Merritt, who I have known for a few years. And uh, Jonathan connected me with his dad, James. And so uh, James wanted to connect. And so we connected on the podcast and um, just really appreciate his love for God's word, his love for Jesus, his love for the gospel. Uh, he's a passionate, energetic, nearly 70-year-old who's written several books, including his most recent book, How to Deal with How You Feel, uh, Managing the Emotions That Make Life Unmanageable. At one point in the podcast, I asked him, I said, James, do you consider yourself a, a an old school preacher, an old school Southern Baptist preacher. Um, and you, you'll see kind of what I, what I meant by that, but I love his response. He said, well, yes and no. And he, he kind of gave reasons why he doesn't consider himself, you know, an old school Southern Baptist preacher. Um, but in many ways, uh, he does capture kind of the old school vision of what it means to be a preacher of God's word. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one or only Dr. James Smith. James, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really excited about this conversation. We've chatted back and forth over the last few years here and there. So this is a, a joy and pleasure to see you in person. Sort of. Listen, I'm a big fan of theology in the raw. I love it. Uh, as you know, sometimes I listen to your uh, podcast and I'll send you a question. Hey, did, <laughs> this, did this guy say this? And I love it because uh, it, it, it's, on the one hand, very unpredictable which is good. Number two, it's very varied. But the fact that I get to be on here is a great thrill. And I appreciate yeah. you having me on. I, I love when I get those. Yeah, you'll, you'll send some questions like, I'm not sure I'm, I quite agree with this last guest or whatever. Like, I, I love <laughs> that you do that, man, because that's that's the spirit of the show is like we're all on a journey in a conversation. You know, there's sometimes I'll get off with a guest. And I'm like, man, I don't I don't know if I buy half of what they said or, you know, right. maybe they're wrong. Maybe I'm right. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. I don't know, but we're all trying to figure this out. Um, well, Preston, to show you what a great job you do, and this is what's funny, sometimes I have a little trouble figuring out where you stand. I say, does he agree with this or not agree with this? Or is, he, <laughs> is he just finding these questions or whatever? And it's really cool. I mean, it really is a cool podcast. No yeah. joke. I love it. That does happen. You know, part of it is I, I, I'm not a debater. I, I, I'm fine. Like writing, I love writing. Like critical responses to people and like in writing i feel like i my, my mind works better but in conversation i just like to really hear people out before i push back or whatever especially with somebody i don't know um so yeah sometimes i'll just listen just because i'm trying to learn but then when i don't push back people are like whoa do you, do you agree with that i'm like what well, I, I don't know yet I'm, I'm still kind of processing it but um yeah that can be mistaken for me like not having an opinion on stuff but um, um what i finally figured out preston was in this one part you, you were talking about this transgendered person yeah you become friends with. Yeah. And I figured out you did it brilliantly. You, 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 to your point, you're not debating, but you're letting them do what they need to do. You're, they're sharing their perspective. Yes. They're sharing their story, but you have the ability, and I'm not flattering you, I'm being honest, to turn it to where it makes a guy like me, hey, it's like a kaleidoscope. I've never seen this, I've never thought about it this way before. I've never seen that. I, I, that helps me understand that person's better. Uh, that person's perspective better, which I think is one of the strengths of the podcast. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, but I want to talk about you, not me. <laughs> okay, so, so you wrote this book, uh, how to deal uh, with how you feel managing emotions that make life unmanageable. I would assume given the nature of this book, um, the title and in light of the times did this, was this birth out of the last couple of years of, and I think that's all I need to say. I mean, no, when you say the last couple of years, people kind of know what I'm getting at, but it's been a pretty tumultuous time for society and the church. Is that, is that what, what led to you writing this book? And then I would love to get your thoughts on just where, where are we at as a church in America? Sure. Well, yes, you pinpointed it. I mean, as I was telling you earlier, before we got up, got started here, you know, I'm, this year I'll be, I'll be hit seven, seven decades on this planet. And I will tell you, I've never seen emotion and the emotional spectrum as wide as I see it today. I've never seen emotional tension as high as I see it today. Um, the things I talk about in the book, just to take the one chapter, just anger. Yeah. I mean, people are just angry. They're angry about politics. They're angry about, you know, the economy. They're angry about, you know, morality. They're angry about, you know, I've just never seen it. I was telling you that, you know, the day when you can have a healthy political debate without it turning so vitriolic, you lose a friendship over it. I, I didn't know that as a kid. Today, I have seen as a pastor friendships destroyed over one political candidate, mm. just one candidate, not just a policy, just even a candidate. And so the, the, you know, it was out of that. And then there's a, there we, you know, we obviously we're, we're, we're under psychologists are saying there's a stress epidemic oh, in America. Yeah. I am seeing more personal bitterness in my, in my flock and people dealing with bitterness and guilt that I've seen since I've been a pastor. So I, I do believe that, um, you know, hopefully the book will be a help to so many people because I deal with, there's a gamut, you know, depression, loneliness, stress, guilt, bitterness, anger, jealousy. It's all out there. But the beautiful thing, Preston, is to know that the God that created us and gave us emotions, but we didn't manufacture emotions. We're, we were created with emotions. Jesus was emotional, as you know, and, and, and God has feelings. God has feelings. So the same God that created us also has given us advice to how to live in such a way that our emotions don't control us, but we control our emotions. Yeah. And that's, that's where the book was born. Why do you think it is that it's so different now. It's so vitriolic that, you know, 20 years ago, you could have a political debate, but very vigorous one, like very, you know, go after, but then you don't think the other person's like evil. You just think they're wrong and they have a bad policy and a bad whatever. But like, you don't think like they're just a horrible, horrible person necessarily. But now I feel like no longer is the other side, whatever that even means, no longer yeah. do I disagree with them. No longer do I think they're wrong, but I think that they're like evil and immoral and it's, <laughs> they're fostering injustice for everything they stand for. It seems like, but what, like, where did that come from? Like what, why, yeah. why? Well, I'd give you, a, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a cultural expert, but I'll give you that answer. But I'll also give you just spiritually speaking, mm. you know, I, we're all born jacked up. Everybody's, we're just all jacked up in different ways. We were born with a sinful nature. You know, uh, every parent knows you don't have to teach a child to lie. You got to teach a child to tell the truth. You don't have to teach a child to, sh- to, to share with his brother. You've got to teach a child not to be so. We're all born that way. We're all born jacked up. So, so just from a spiritual standpoint, not really surprised. Conflict's been, you know, with us forever. I will tell you, though, this is my other side of the analysis, uh, Preston. I believe that we have become such an individualistic hmm. society. It's all about me. It's all about I. And so now everything's personal. Everything, it doesn't matter what it, everything's personal. I tell our church, uh, I've got a very diverse church. Um, we, we're very diverse racially. We're diverse politically. I've got Republicans. I've got Democrats. I've got independents. I've got libertarians. But one of the creeds we live by in our church is this, two things. Number one, when you walk into the doors of our church, you don't bring politics with you. I don't preach politics in the pulpit. I don't endorse people. It's all about the Bible, the gospel, and Jesus. That's what you're going to get. You want to go out in the parking lot and talk politics? Talk about it all day long. Not here. That's number one. Number two, we do not make the political personal. Okay. That's a a, a golden rule. We don't make the political personal. And now everything is personal. 
mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. people it, because it's all about the individual well the more you focus on you which we now do to the exclusion of others the more sensitive we are the more hypersensitive we are the more we take anything as a slight so here's a, here's a here's a great example we were talking about it in our staff um, I'm, I'm doing a series. This is a little bit off the beat path. It's an answer to your questions. And I, I'm doing a series or about to do a series on the seven churches of Revelation. Okay. So I, I just finished the message on the church at Pergamum. And it's interesting. One of the problems that church faced was they were being lied. They were the, the word, Greek word is scandalized. They were being scandalized by the Jewish community in the synagogue of Satan. What was happening was the Jewish community they were lying about Christians to the Roman authorities. They were saying they were atheists because they would not confess Caesar as Lord. They were saying that they were against the, the, the Roman government. They wanted to bring it down. And they were telling all kinds of lies, which really weren't true. So today, for example, if I say or you say, we believe that God's word teaches that sex should be only between a man and a woman when the, within the confines of marriage. If that's all you say, automatically, with a large segment of people now, you're intolerant, you're homophobic, you're judgmental, you're hateful, Mm. you're narrow-minded, you're unloving, you're uncompassionate. None of those things may be true at all. None of them. But you say just one statement, because we so hyper- elevated the individual in society today it goes even to your book that you wrote on you know on you know that that now with the and 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 you know one of the things i love about you the church has done a real poor job this is a rabbit to chase but the church has done a super poor job with being compassionate toward the lbgtq community and people who are marginalized i get it and i want i don't want to be that way okay i want to make that very plain that said on the other hand, as you point out in your book, now we've gotten to the point where we're so individualized that we have now allowed feelings to triumph over fact. Hmm. So, good example. The fact may be that genetically and biologically you were born a male or a female. That may be the biological fact. But now we said it doesn't matter if I feel like I'm not a man or feel like I am not a woman, then the feeling should triumph back. Well, when you even just on that one elementary level say, well, wait a minute, let's examine that. All of a sudden, you just face unbelievable anger and vitriol and misunderstanding and so forth. So my own personal answer and opinion to your question is we have so hyper, hyper lifted up the individual and it's all about me. And it, all that matters. So, you know, what's true for you may not be true for me, even though it's true. Well, if, if truth is true, it's true for you and me, whether you like it or not. But that's not where we are as a society today, in my opinion. How, how big is your, you, you founded the church over 20 years ago, right? The church you're yeah. pastoring at? Yeah. And you said it's diverse. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. how, how did you guys handle, especially the political diversity? I mean, so I guess you kind of said, like, we're not going to bring it in here, but it's one thing to say that, like... <laughs> The last couple of years, people didn't care. They were going to fight tooth and nail. Did you have disruption and tension at the church? What, what? No. Let me tell you what we did, believe it or not. First of all, it's not what we did, what we did, and what we didn't do. First of all, one of the reasons we're diverse, we live in a very diverse area. You know, Atlanta's very diverse. We've got a, a large contingent of African-Americans in our community, Koreans, and a lot of Koreans in our community, a lot of Indians in, in our community. Uh, and, and so, of course, we about Anglo-Saxons. So just by the fact you try to reach your community, you're going to do that. But here's what we do. This is the only thing we do that somebody might even consider political, but it's not. I started the church in 2003. So beginning in 2004, the Sunday after the presidential election, we get on our knees as a congregation and pray for the president-elect. So we prayed for Bush. We prayed for Obama. We prayed for Trump. We prayed for Biden. And everybody knows we're going to do it. We pray for them. Right. And then the second thing is I just occasionally just by, by what I not do, what I don't do is the preaching politics. And then occasionally just I'll, I'll probably say it at least eight times a year to our people. So, hey, remember this. Like, for example, if I'm, I'm next year, I'm going to be preaching on some of these issues, the transgender issue, the gay marriage issue, the abortion issue. I've told our people up front, this is not political. Mm-hmm. I'm not going politics. So just take that out of it. We're just going to go to what I believe God's word teaches about these issues. But I'll remind you, we do not make the political personal. We've hammered it to our people. So that's really ingrained into okay. our culture. That's what we've done, Preston. Because when I reflected on some churches, it just, 
seemingly out of nowhere just kind of exploded and all of a sudden there's all this tension people are leaving fighting families being broken up i wondered if there could if there could have been maybe some pre-discipleship happening before <laughs> things got so heated so that people um didn't put their allegiance in one side or the other they didn't see the other person as as evil you know i just feel like there was just kind of like slow flame building you know of this 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 hyper politicalization of you know or hyper uh, tribalism if you will you know it's one thing i'm sure people are going to land on different sides whatever but i feel like there's this this slow cook where people just found more and more of their allegiance in one side or the other they started only listening to this news outlet that news outlet which more and more became more vitriolic and more anger driven and it just seemed like a slow cook then once you get to the kind of trump era whatever it just was bound to just explode um so it sounds like you were already laying some foundational themes in people's lives long before it hit that moment yeah and preston i'm going to say something that may make some of my pastor buddies mad that's okay but i'm going to take i'm going to sound like preston sprinkle here for just a moment uh and i say that with with disrespect (laughs) i'm so nervous (laughs) preston what i'm afraid it's one thing to start a fire it's another thing to pour cat kerosene on it i i'm i'm firmly in in in, and i've told my church this I, I steadfastly refuse to put anything ahead of the gospel. And I steadfastly refuse to do anything that would be a stumbling block to the gospel. And I'm not calling out anybody. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just telling you how I'm, I'm doing it in my own ministry. I am theologically conservative to the core. You know that. Mm-hmm. I am politically conservative to the core. Not ashamed of it. Don't mind anybody knowing that. Yeah. At the same time, I refuse to put politics, any particular candidate at all before the gospel. Hmm. The gospel is the most important thing to me. And I want to conduct myself, and even in what I say from the pulpit, I want to do it in such a way that the most rabid Democrat or the most rabid Republican would not be afraid, in fact, would want to come hear me preach Hmm. because they know that I'm not going to put any kerosene on the fire that would cause them to take their eyes off of the cross and off of the gospel and off of, off the need for, I'm just not going to do that. Again, I'm not taking a shot at anybody else. I don't have to answer it for anybody else. I'm just not going, I'm just not going to do that. And that's that. And and I'm just, I've just steadfastly maintained that. And that's why in our church, we don't, we just don't have those. We just, the last thing I'm concerned about in my church is just what you said's happened to other churches. Cause we just don't, there's no oxygen in the room. If the fire even got started, it'd be put out. There's just no oxygen in the room for that. What what about, you said your church is fairly multi-ethnic given the neighborhood that it's in. Cause during the last couple of years, a lot of racial tensions and stuff that did that. Was that, um, did those flare up in your church or did you weather those similar to the political tension? I'll give you a great example of that. I'm not saying this to brag on me or our church. When the George Floyd incident happened, right after that, I took a Sunday. I did a, I had a, uh, on the stage, I brought two of our African-American men up in our church who are two of our African-American leaders. And I said to them, point blank, I said, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to lay cards on the table and get the elephant out of the room. I said, I hate what happened with George Floyd. You know, I, I freely admit anybody that says they never had a, a prejudicial thought in their heart, they're lying through their teeth. I've had prejudicial thoughts. We all have. Racist, in the classical definition, I'm not a racist. I wasn't racist to be a racist. I'm not a racist in the, in the classical sense. That said, I said to these two men, I said, I want you to do something for our church. I'm not a black man, and I will never be black. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front, I will never know what you went through growing up. Tell me what it was like. Tell us what it was like to grow up black. I, I'll give you a good example. You, you have children, right, yeah, Preston? Yeah, four, okay. yeah. All right, so your kids will grow up day one day, and they're going to you know, drive a car. When my three boys, when I taught my boys how to drive, the one thing I never, ever said to them, never thought about saying to them, now, if you get pulled over by a cop, you put your hand on the steering wheel, you, you know, you, boy, you, you have it, just whatever they tell you to do, never occurred to me. Both of these men said they were taught, they taught their kids, if you get pulled over by a cop, especially, and I'm not, not listen, we have cops in our congregation. I love police officers. I want to make that plain. But they felt like they had to do that. It's just one example of growing up black. I never thought about. Mm-hmm. I never knew what it was like to have to drink from a separate water fountain. 
I don't know what it's like that I had a great, great, great grandfather that was owned by the man's great, great grandfather who lived down the street. I don't know what that, that is like. So we were just talking about theology in the raw. Yeah. This was more feelings than us. And I want you to tell us it was one of the best things we've ever done. And they were great about it. They said, look, we're, Christ changed our life. We know he's the only answer, but but there was an understanding there that I wanted our people to have. So people, particularly African-American community, were super appreciative that instead of coming up and taking the tack of, hey, that's an outlier, we're not all bad, blah, blah, I just said, hey, guys, I know how I've responded to, to the George Floyd. Tell us, as a black man, how have you responded to it? It was so eye-opening and so very enlightening. And you didn't, did you have any fallout from the other side, like white nope. conservatives that got defensive or whatever? No, it was, nope. wow. Not a bit. That's I really did. Wow. No, it was awesome. You're one of right. It's one of the most watched services we've ever had online. Mm. It, ex- I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was great. People are, still talk about it. Are you, part, is it, are you formally part of the Southern Baptist? Is your church is Southern Baptist or? I better be because I was president of the convention for two years. So I, I better be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was actually president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Preston, from uh, 2000 to 2002. So before I, I, you planted this church, okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. In fact, I, just as soon as I got through in 2002, the next year is when I planted this church. Okay. But we are, we're, we're our church is Southern Baptist. Now, here's the interesting thing. You wouldn't know it. We don't, we're not ashamed of it. We just don't publicize right. it because, frankly, right now, Southern Baptist, our Southern Baptist brand's not as high as we'd like for it to be. I'm, I'm calling it like it is. I'm, I believe in the Southern Baptist Convention. I love the convention. I'm, I'm a sold-out Southern Baptist. I think the good that we do far outweighs the bad that we've gone through. But uh, at the, so, but our church is called Crosspoint, not Crosspoint Baptist. We're just Crosspoint Church. But we lead, we, full disclosure, if you came to our church and joined our church, in our first class, we let you know we're Southern Baptist. We don't hide it, not ashamed of it. And we adhere to what we call the Southern Baptist faith and message. But, yeah, I'm a strong part of the SBC, yeah. yes. I, well, since you brought it up, I'm curious, could you go a little deeper in kind of the SBC, what they've been going through the last few years? I know it hasn't been easy. I I, I, I talked to J.D. Greer was on the podcast right when the yeah. report came out. Um, I had a, a survivor on as well. Do, do you feel like you guys are, uh, where are you on the journey? Like, do you feel like it's, it's going to keep getting more difficult before it gets better? Or is there a lot of really healthy, for lack of better terms, house cleaning happening or... For those of us who aren't SBC, give us a little insight on yeah. how you guys are doing. Well, to quote my mentor, Dr. Adrian Rogers, God rest his soul, uh, the answer to your questions are yes. <laughs> um, put simply, I, I think, you know, first of all, if you're anything about Southern Baptist, uh, we're like any other family. We love each other deeply, but we fight at times and we feud at times and we disagree at times and we have strong opinions. And that's just who we are, Southern Baptist. I don't know what's going to happen um, in the intermediate future. I think things may get a little bit worse before they get better. The flip side of that is I have tremendous enthusiastic hope and and, and confidence in our future. We've got a lot of tremendous, like JD's one example, we've got a lot of tremendous young leaders Mm -hmm. that are coming up through the ranks. We're seeing more young people at our convention than I've seen in a long time. Really? Um, I love the fact that we are still we have we have six of the largest seminaries in America, all strongly evangelical, committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, committed to the what I'd call the basics or the fundamentals of the faith. We have the largest mission force of any you know denomination in America. We've got over six thousand missionaries. They get evangelical. We've got over six thousand missionaries on the field. Um, we, we, there's so many great things going. We are we are the bedrock of conservative evangelical theology. So uh, I, I tell anybody, you know, yeah, on the outside, all you're going to get is the bad news. But every bit of bad news you give, I'll give you three pieces of good news. So right now, the way I would call it, yeah, the uh, the current's pretty rocky out there. The waves are pretty high right now. The boat's getting rocked pretty good. But we're not going to sink anytime soon. We're not going anywhere. We're going to weather this storm. And I think down the road, we're going to be better for, for who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. Are things being dealt with within terms of the abuse allegations or, and I don't know all the details and I'm not going to pretend I, I know, but. Um, no. uh, yeah. And I'll give you maybe too much information. And by the way, JD is to be commended, did a fantastic job as our president uh, and, and led the way, led the charge in this whole area, as you know, 
we had a task force that was uh, appointed to engage in this. We engaged a guidepost to help us get to the bottom of what actually went on. Uh, our track record in some of those areas was not good, to put it very mildly. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful thing is uh, we, have, we were mature enough as a denomination to admit, you know what? We messed up over here. We can't, you know, we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. We can get a new tube of toothpaste. And so what we've done is we put put uh, procedures in place and policies in place and abilities now to track abuse and to make sure that churches are aware when, you know, of, of, of people out there who have been guilty of those kind of things. We have done our best to to try to ask forgiveness for victims that did the right thing. They reached out. Unfortunately, they were either rebuffed outright or they were handled with less than the respect they should have been, you know, guilty as charged. We've admitted that as a, as a denomination. So, um, you know, I, I think overall uh, it's going to be a, a, a I think, I'm no doubt, it's going to be a net positive for us. Publicity hasn't been all that good. We understand that. Part, a lot of that, though, has been self-inflicted and, and, and deserved, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But we are trying to flip the narrative. And we have been, by a lot of the public, at least commended the fact that we've not only admitted the problem, but we've taken concrete, practical steps to make sure the problem doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And again, kudos to J.D. and and some of the key leaders that helped make that happen. What do you say to people? I I think I got some responses on social media when I had uh, J.D. on. And, And to be clear... No matter what podcast I release, there's always I get criticism. No matter what, <laughs> as you can imagine. Get in line, my man. So somebody liked the one on Monday, but they didn't like the Thursday one. And the next email is, I like the Thursday one, but not the one on Monday. It's just like I change the channel if if you know if if you're right. not excited about this interview or the next one or whatever. But um, one of the things on at least on maybe on social media with Jay when JD came on, and it might have been from a survivor. Um, you know they said. You know, it's painful to listen to because it's too little too late. He he may have been well-intended and everything, but like for somebody who had to live for years where, where it wasn't being dealt with, it's hard for me to hear like, oh, we're doing everything great now, you know, which I didn't hear JD. I, I, I heard JD speaking with a lot of humility and repentance sure. and saying, no, we, yeah, we didn't do everything right. We did lots of things wrong, period. Like that was in like, we own that. I all we can do is keep apologizing and keep pushing forward and doing better. Um, I didn't hear him at all candy coating the past and I'm not, and, and, and the critics, I don't think we're trying to say he was candy. It, you know, it's just when somebody has gone through such a horrific experience for years and years and years where leaders are either negligent or guilty. It's just, it's hard to, I don't know. Um, I can only imagine, you know, what, what, what that's, what that's like. But um, yeah, what would you say if somebody said, you know, no matter what you do, it's kind of like you're, it's too little, too late. It's a great question. It's a fair question. And let me just say, it kind of goes back to be not, not, you know, not being a, a white guy. I'm yeah. not a woman. I've never been sexually abused because you don't have to be a woman to be sexually abused, but I've not gone through what some of these sexual abuse victims went through. I, I, I understand on the one hand, there will always be the sad regret that too little, too late, maybe for them, hopefully. Yeah. But I would hope that rather than dwell on what wasn't done they can at least take solace in the fact that what wasn't done spurred us to do what we should have done and what we are doing now. And hopefully they'll realize, I know it was a high price to pay, but at least knowing that they are a part of making sure as much as possible, this never happens again. So it's kind of like the mom that loses a child to a drunk driver. You can, you can cry in your soup, and you can, you know, dwell on it, or you can say, you know what, I think I'm going to form an organization called MAD. Now, I think I'm going to do something about drunk drivers. No, ma'am, I get it. It won't bring your little boy, little girl back, and I am so sorry. But who knows how many lives you will have saved, even though it came at a high price, mm-hmm. how many lives were saved because of your courageous action. So, you know, my, I don't want to sound flippant when I say this, uh, Preston, so I hope you don't get any bad feedback on this. <laughs> something beats nothing. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know it you know, It may be too little. Maybe it's still too little. Maybe we're not done yet. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I'd say it's too late. It may be too late for you in the past. It is not too late for people today and people tomorrow. Right. And I hope people would really focus on that. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, golly. Well, if you go back to your time as president, like, 
was there stuff going on that was just just wasn't brought to light at that time? Like if, if you could go back and be president again, like 20, knowing now what you know, what, would you have done anything different? I don't even know what, what was going on when yeah. you were president, but. Um, well, yeah. obviously, you know, for me, it probably wouldn't have been so much. It wasn't talked about much in this area. Of course, I one of my favorite sayings, Preston, is uh, everybody's an All-American Monday morning quarterback. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to give you an answer a little bit different. The thing I would have probably given even more attention to is the whole racial situation okay. and, 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 and given more attention to diversifying the leadership okay. and the participation in our convention, which we've not had a good track record on either uh, while we're on the topic. But the direct answer to your question is, no, I'm not saying that sex abuse did go on. That obviously would be foolish. But there, it, it wasn't to the forefront. There was no, uh, you know, um, what was the... Uh, What's the me movement? What's it called? Uh, yeah, me too. There was no me too movement back then. It wasn't on the radar screen. Doesn't doesn't mean it was wasn't out there. It just wasn't on the radar screen. So, the, in fact, I got interviewed by Guidepost. There was nothing that came, and, and I was chairman of the executive committee too, by the way, back in the day. Nothing came before me as president. Nothing came before my time as 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 the chairman of the executive committee. There was nothing that was swept under the rug. It just wasn't out there at all. So, you know, obviously, even knowing what I know now, I'm not sure I would change that aspect of it very much because it just, you know, wasn't really in the, uh, you know, in the forefront. But, you know, uh, to your point, there are people, unfortunately, that have to live with the fact that they do have to look back and they have to own their junk and they have to realize I blew it, didn't do what I should have done. And, uh, you know, at that point, all you can do is do a mea culpa and, you know, I'm sorry, guilty. Hey, I can't do anything about that, but I can do something now. I'm going to do it. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're hopeful? Very. Yeah. Very, very hopeful. Yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Two things make me hopeful. Number one is our theology. Number two is our, is our purpose and our mission. We are about the Great Commission. We're not doing a very good job of it, but one thing Southern Baptists have always been known for is evangelism. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm I'm highly evangelistic and 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 try to be. Uh, so those two things, as long as we stay by the book mm-hmm. and we just stand by, you know, good what I believe is biblical conservative theology, and we preach the truth and preach the whole counsel of God, and live that out by being compassionate to the marginalized, loving to those who are outside the flock, and doing all we can to carry out the Great Commission. I will always be hopeful about who we are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you just said you're turning 70 this year. I am. 20 years in your current church plant have been, you've been around the block. (laughs) When you look forward to the next like three to five years, I I feel like we're just in this weird space of every month. There's a new huge news event that just is terrible and, and disruptive and, we got an, an election coming up, you know, it's like, who knows what that's going to do to the church. And like, what do you, um, what, what, what makes you excited for the next five to 10 years? Um, and, and what makes you a little bit like, oh man, we, we got to get our stuff together as we enter into this next season as a, as a church in, in America, if that makes sense. Like, what are some things you feel like are maybe making me not nervous? I mean, we got the power of Jesus and the gospel, but a little nervous. Like you're kind of like, Oh man, like this, you know, kind of like a ship getting ready for a, a couple big waves coming. It's like, all right, here, we got to get ready for this, you know? And, and what are the, some things that you maybe are just super excited about what, what the future holds? Well, let me, let's, let's do the negative first. Let's take the, let's take the tails and we'll take the heads. I'm not, Oh, I'm not scared. I'm not really nervous, but I think that we all should be, and, 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 and this is biblical. We all should be concerned. Jesus was concerned. Paul was concerned. Peter was concerned. We all ought to be concerned. I'm very concerned about the culture and where the culture is going. I'm very concerned. Um, I mean, and again, I'm not trying to pick on any one issue, but who would have dreamed that you would have to worry that as a parent of a first or second or third grader, that you'd even, there'd be even be a debate that just because a boy thinks he's a girl, he can walk into your granddaughter or you're walking to your daughter's bathroom at school. Who, who would even think that would be debatable? I'm, I'm just being honest. I'm, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I can yeah. talk about other things. But, you know, um, I, they're, they're, Philip Howard wrote a book called The Death of Common Sense. 
And you just take scripture, just take scripture out of it. The, 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 the rejection of just common sense in our society is just mind boggling to me. Uh, I, I do believe, you know, I hear, I say this all the time, you know, when, when Ben Franklin came out of the constitutional convention, you may know the story, Preston, I'm a big histor- love history. A lady saw him on the street and she said, well, Mr. Franklin, what did you accomplish? And he said, or they said, what, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, if two people in a perfect garden couldn't keep the garden, what makes us think we're going to be able to keep what we've got? Hmm. So, you know, when you read 2 Timothy 3, Paul said, in the latter days, difficult times are going to come. So I don't think things are going to necessarily get better for the church in America. I don't. I don't. Unless there's a great awakening. I think in in one. So here's the bad news. It's going to get darker culturally in America, darker spiritually, in my opinion. I'm not a pessimist. I'm realist. Here's the good news. The the darker the night, the brighter the light. Mm -hmm. And I know deep down that the church will prevail because Jesus said it would. And I, here's what I think is happening. You asked this before we got on the broadcast. Let me tell you what I think is happening in the church right now, more than I've ever seen it. I think COVID, Preston, accelerated it. And I'd like to ask your opinion, see if you agree with me. I think the church is being sifted. I think we're finding out right now who, who's really sold out to the church, who's really committed to the church. I was talking to our church yesterday, uh, preaching on the, uh, I was, I was going have, being born again. You know, I said, uh, there are a lot of people, I, I told a little joke about a man that, uh, this is worth, worth hearing. There was a man that used to be a, with his wife. He just nagged his wife, berated his wife, criticized his wife. He was just always on his wife's case all the time. And so she just, just drove her nuts. Well, one day they came home from church and he told his wife, he says, hey, I've, I've been bored again. And she says, oh, it's great. That's wonderful. But nothing changed. He kept berating his wife and criticizing his wife and nagging his wife. Finally, one day she looked at him. She said, you know, I'm glad you've been born again. I just wish you had not been born again as yourself. (laughs) And Preston, I think there are a lot of people that have been born again as themselves. When you're born again, there's a difference. I got born again. I was born again in a movie theater as a nine-year-old boy in a theater. I I didn't understand all that happened to me when when I literally in the middle of a movie asked Christ into my heart. But Preston, I knew the kid that walked out wasn't the cute kid that walked in. I knew my life was different. And I told our people, I said, you know, I'm not saying you, you good works has nothing to do with being born again. I'll make that plain. I said, on the other hand, if you're really born again, I don't think I'd have to beg you to come to church. If you're really born again, I don't think I'd have to beg you and put you on a guilt trip to financially support God's work. If you're really born again, I don't think I'd have to nag you about sharing Jesus with other people. So the point I'm, I'm making is, you know, right now we're battling the same thing other churches have. Our online attendance is outstripping our in-person attendance. And a lot of that in-person, a lot of that online attendance, we know they live five miles from our church. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the day of the online attender. Well, I tell people this, we're not going to Zoom heaven, Preston. Yeah. You're not going to online heaven. And if there's not enough in your Christianity to make you want to physically assemble with believers and be a part of a body of believers and get to know fellow believers and be an encouragement to other believers, if there's not enough of your in Christian, your Christianity to want to do, assuming you're physically able to want to do that, what makes you want to go to heaven? Because we're not going to be able to separate from each other in heaven. We're not going to be going to a little cover. We're going to be together forever in resurrected bodies. So I believe the church is being sifted and we're really being finding out. And I'm finding this out now. We're finding out who really was committed to the church and who really just showed up at church. And I think that's what's happening. Let me, let me, let me push on that a little bit. Cause I, um, theologically, I agree with a lot of that if it's happening. Like, so, uh, obviously if going to church, if you're being known and, and knowing others, you're being loved you're, and you're engaging in meaningful, like in-depth, authentic conversations like humans, we, we are not, we're not designed to live al- alone. We're not designed to be Christians alone. We're designed to live in community. Um, and I know nothing about your church, so I'm really speaking abstractly here. But if somebody is hungering for that, if they're hungering for challenging, meaningful teaching, um, authentic worship, you know, uh, meaningful, authentic relationships. 
any genuine Christian should be, I think, hungering for that. The problem is, as a congregant <laughs> on the other side, in my experience, that's pretty rare that I actually get that in churches. I've been to many churches here in, in Boise, and 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 we've lived different parts of the country. And um, there's times I, I'll go, I was at one church for over a year. I had preached several times. My wife was helping out the youth group. And for whatever reason, I think we were gone um, for like six weeks in the summer. It was a small church, 250 people. And when we came back, nobody even knew we were gone. Nobody even like, hey, where were you? Whatever. Like, and if we don't make an effort in certain, I'm not thinking of any one particular church, but there's been contexts where it's like, you know, um, if I don't go out of my way and make an effort and dig into somebody's life, like it'll just not happen. And there's times when I just feel, you know, I'm just kind of exhausted. I've been speaking all week in three different states. So I show up on, you know, come home on Friday night, show up on church on Sunday. And he say, you know what? I'm going to let somebody else make the effort this time. <laughs> and it's crickets. It's like, I go, I hear a message that sometimes it's okay. You know, it's like, I, I work hard to kind of follow what they're trying to say. The worship, nobody's really into it. Nobody right. even makes an effort with me. And then I go home and I'm like, well, what, like, if I really ask a hard question, what, what was that? You know, cause I, again, I want to dig into people's, I want people to dig into my life. I want to, if my wife and I had a huge fight the night before, I would love to come to church and have within minutes, somebody like checking up on us, you know, or like digging into my, I want that. There's many church or so, let me just say, I, for people that have that kind of experience that are hungering for something meaningful, but just are not getting that. Would it like, <laughs> I would, I, I would, I could hear them pushing back and saying, well, yeah, but my church experience doesn't have all the things you're saying that I should be hungering for as a believer. I am hungering for that as a believer. just not, I'm not getting at church. So after a while, they're kind of like, well, why show up when I'm just going to show up and have a couple of superficial conversations, hear a message that I don't really understand and go home. Like I, you know, what do you, how do you deal with that? Well, believe it or not, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and, and so I want to make something plain. There's a difference between going to church yeah. or attending the church and getting involved in a church on the congregant side. On the other side, to your point, I would say if your church is not offering, let me let me take my give you my church. We're not a great perfect church, but I'll tell you about our church. So our mission statement is to point people to Jesus and inspire them to live the cross-shaped life. Hmm. Okay. Everybody knows our mission statement. But what does the cross-shaped life mean? We we every week we we, we want our people to do four things. We want to worship Disciple, serve, and send. We want people to be involved in worship, be involved in a corporate worship, and practice private worship. Discipleship. We want people to have, learn how to walk with God, have a quiet time, have a walk with the Lord, but get involved in community. Our discipleship is done in small groups. We provide that opportunity. We want people to serve. We, we teach you, we, we'll, we'll work with you to find your spiritual gift, find a place to serve in our community. And then we do not want you to leave your Christianity at the, at the church. You are sent. We want you to go mm -hmm. live the Christian life, share the gospel. Now, here's my point. If the church is not providing those opportunities and doing everything they can to grease the own ramp to do that, that's on the church. Okay. From a pastor's perspective, what, what, what blows, what, what frustrates me is we hammer it week after week after week, and we still got most people that don't serve. Most people don't, you know, a lot of people don't get involved in a small group. A lot, you know, they, they come and they don't even sing the songs when they come. So I think it's a, you, it's a different it's side a of the same. Yeah, yeah. So, so my point is this. If you say, you know, here's a good example. If your church, if you go to a church and you're gone six weeks and nobody knew you were there, if you only go to church and all you did was sit, maybe sat in different places for six weeks, that's not too surprising. Yeah. Even small yeah. church. But if you were involved in a small group mm -hmm. and nobody in your small group noticed you were gone for six weeks, that's a problem. <laughs> or if your church did not provide a small group environment, that's a problem. Yeah. So I, I think it, you know, it, it's 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 a it's a both and what I'm seeing more and more is even in a church like ours, in fact, we're going on a staff retreat two weeks to, to, to really talk about those four things. How can, we, how can we increase real, true participation in worship? How can we get more people involved in more small groups? How can we get more people finding a place to serve, putting their spiritual gift to work? And how can we motivate more people to go on mission trips, be involved in sharing? How can we do that? At the, once, you, once we do all we can, 
then it falls back on the individual congregants say, okay, now I've got to take advantage of this situation. I've got to be in community. I need to find a place to serve. I need to engage in worship, and I need to be sharing my faith. We ask a question of our, of our congregation every Sunday. Who's your one? Who's that one person you're that's lost? Who's that one person you're praying for? Who's that one person you're having a gospel conversation with? Who's that one person you're trying to build a spiritual bridge to? We ask it every week. So, you know, if a church is not doing that, that's on the church. Yeah. But if a church is doing that, then all we can do, you can you can give the horse the water, but you can't make him drink, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's such a hard question because a lot of it does depend on the air, the culture that's created from the church. It's hard to even identify this. Like I've been part of small groups that are vibrant and and meaningful and, 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 you know, but a lot of that is dependent kind of, there's enough people that were meaningful and, and, and authentically following Jesus. They they created this kind of culture of that. This is what the small group's about. I've been a part of other small groups where, yeah, go a year without them even having a clue what I do for a living really. Or like, Right. Or they maybe in one year that I've been asked like two personal questions, you know, like, so just being in a room with 10 other people for a long period of time doesn't necessarily guarantee depth and meaningfulness. And then that's, um, and, and I don't know. I mean, that's because the church, all the church can really do is create the opportunities. Like you said, they can't force people to be meaningful and care. They can't, you know, <laughs> or maybe they could, I don't know. Like maybe there is something, is there something the church could be doing Maybe the modeling it on a leadership team to where if you came in here and you're, if you're part of this culture, this church culture for any number of weeks and you're not like looking around and getting to know people, like it would just be awkward because they've, they've created this culture where that's what, to be believers, we are a family. You're my brother, you're my sister, you're my aunt, you're my mother, and we're going to, we're going to act like a family. And if you don't act like a family, this church is going to be weird. You're going to be like, oh, I don't. I just want to come and sit and it's going to, you know, this is might not be the place for me because I just want to come hear a message and leave. So is that true? I mean, is it, is it kind of a, not just providing the opportunities, but creating a culture where it's just in the air, you know what I mean? Like, or even worship. There's some, I sometimes ask myself, like, how come I could sit sit through one worship service and it's almost like hard for me to sing. I'm just like, and other worship service where I can't not sing. It just yeah. exploded out of me. And I can't put my finger on what was the difference. The music was good. The worship leader did whatever. Like, it's just there's something in the air almost where you just feel the authenticity in certain settings versus another. And I don't know if that's on the church to create that or if that's just what happened. I don't you know. know. I'll be honest. I think it's just being human. I think it's I, look, there are Sundays I feel more like preaching than I do other Sundays. Sure. And, and I, you know, I don't ever try to fake it, but I'm just saying there's some cer- certain sermons I'm sometimes more excited about than others. The thing, the thing, and I, I affirm everything that you're saying. The thing is, and I know you know this, Preston, but you know, Doctor Rogers used to say, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it; you'll ruin it. You'll ruin it, yeah. Uh, you know, and so there's no perfect church. I will tell you this. I want to go back to something you said though that that really got my antenna up. I'm, again, I'm not being critical, not throwing stones at anybody. I do believe, Preston, to your point, and this is a weakness. I think there's a dearth of real solid biblical preaching in the church. I do. I just think there's a, a, a dirt. I've said this before, and I don't mean it to sound ugly or unkind. I'm not sure I'd walk across the street to hear the average Baptist preacher preach. And I don't mean that to sound arrogant at all. But, you know, my number one responsibility from everything I read in Scripture as a pastor is to preach the Word. That's my number one responsibility. And no matter what else I do or how well, it doesn't matter how many hospital visits I make, how much, e- how many emails I, I, re- I send, how many phone calls I return. If you come to church on Sunday and you don't hear a word from the Lord, fresh, I mean, fresh bread from, from heaven's oven, there's a problem. There's a big problem. Uh, Dr. R.G. Lee, you probably never heard of him, said great preaching overcomes a multitude of sins. And, and I believe that really is true. So I just say, you know, it is refreshing. I visited four churches when I was, I take the month of July off every week, every, every year. And I went to four different churches. I heard two solid biblical messages from the word of God. One church, it was at the movies and it was movie clips and it was kind of biblical admonition sprinkled in. Okay. That's fine. I'm not going to, throw rocks at anybody. I'm just saying it wasn't the preaching of the word of God. And I just think there's a dearth of it today to be honest. I really do. Why is that? 
I think it's a number of reasons. I think number one, there's a lack of confidence that that this that, that, that this Bible that I keep on my desk. I think there's a lack of confidence that this is what we need. That this is the this is here's what I tell young preachers: you can have the most ornate, expensive lamp in the world. It may be an antique that costs you a hundred thousand dollars, but if you don't plug that lamp in, it won't do you any good. Mm-hmm. This is the power source. Mm-hmm. This is the plug. The more I tie my preaching to that book, the more powerful my message is going to be. Because the preaching doesn't reside in me. It resides in the book. It resides in what I'm preaching. And I just think for some reason people think, yeah, but this is not enough. This really is enough. Again, I'm not against, we show video clips. We show, I'm not against all that stuff. We're, We're a contemporary church. But at the end of the day, this is the power source. This is the book. And, and, and I'm going to be honest. And this goes against the grain of some guys, and I won't call any names. But you, if you're going to do the, if you're going to do expositional preaching, you're going to work your rear end off. Mm-hmm. When I'm going, when I'm when I'm preparing these messages on the seven churches right now, you got to get after well, Smyrna. What's the big? Why, why was it? Why, what's the big deal about Smyrna? What was so important about Smyrna? What was what, Laodicea? What was so important? What, when it says that that. Uh, that, that, that the Jews lied about. You need to know that word, that word scandalon, one of the strongest words in the New Testament. They scandalize these Christians. Hmm. Think about that. It's one thing to lie about somebody. That's kind of mild. I could tell a little white lie about you, but it wouldn't necessarily be a scandal. Mm-hmm. But if I scandalize you, I could cost you your ministry. Mm-hmm. I could cost you your family. I could cost you your reputation. Well, the word is scam. Well, I don't know that if I'm not willing to get in there and dig out the gold that I've got to do my own pick and shovel. Mm-hmm. And a lot of pastors don't want to do that. And they see themselves more as CEO entrepreneurs than they do shepherds of the flock and preachers of the word. That's my yeah. opinion. Would you call yourself, would you, <laughs> would you say you're an old school Southern Baptist preacher? Is that is that is that a, de, 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 uh, de, a negative word or would you? Uh, and I'm using that in a positive sense. I would surprise you. Yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the fact that um, I mean I don't yell, scream, split, and uh, you know spit, and I don't have oil <laughs> in my hair, and I don't wear a black suit. Yes, in the sense of I do believe in in biblical exposition. Yes. Uh, I do believe whatever Jesus believed, I believe. So I believe in hell. I believe in heaven. Uh, if the if whatever I believe the Bible is clearly teaches clearly, I'm going to say clearly. Um, I'm going to preach it. It's true. I'm going to preach the whole counsel yeah. of God. On the other hand, I'm, the way I dress right now is the way I preach. We have contemporary music. We use relevant, uh, up to date illustrations, and 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 you know we're we're trying to make sure people know we know what's going on in the culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I say, I got I got criticized when I started this church and didn't put Baptist in the name. Okay, I just got criticized. Uh, I got criticized because I said to the church we started it, my number one goal is to reach the next generation. We're always going to be about reaching the next generation. So, you know, yes and no. But in the sense of do I really believe that we have gotten away from really preaching the word? Paul said, Timothy, preach the word, not your opinion, not polls, not the latest stories. Preach the word. I think we've gotten away from that. Going back to why... You don't, you're seeing less and less of that. Do you think there, and this is a genuine question, I'm not trying to like bait and switch, but yeah. do you think that there is an assumption that if you do that, your church will shrink and not grow? Is there an assumption that you, we need to do something more, less, you know, hardcore biblical preaching because few and few, few, fewer people are going to be interested in that. And I want to grow my church. I want to expand it and everything. If that's if you're going to answer partly yes, I, I I think there's actually a deeper hunger for more thoughtfulness and intricacy and power and meaningfulness in messages than less. I think there's more of a hunger for that. We live in an information age where people I think are hungering for just straight up knowledge. They want to know what the truth is deep down, and, and if they have if they see somebody who has clearly done the homework, they're not just a good rhetorician, but they have actually done the homework. They're, they, 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 they're trustworthy because they've shown that they've examined different interpretive possibilities and they're not afraid to talk about that. I think there's more of a hunger for that. So I don't know. There's kind of two parts to no, that. You asked, you said, you asked a question, made a statement. I agree with your statement. What you just said, I totally agree with. Okay. I do believe whether it's overt or subliminal, I think that there are a lot of people that are more interested in building a crowd than building a church. Okay. And and I will give you one example. 
And there are churches out there, and I can name them to you privately. When 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 churches say there are certain issues we just will not touch, right? That's all I, you, you said. All I need to hear. Right. You just told me you're not going to preach the word of God. Just what you just told me. So take, just pick the issue. We're not going to touch homosexuality. We're not going to touch abortion. We're not going to touch. We're not. Or we're not ever going to be controversial. A church doesn't have to go out of its way to be controversial, and should not go out of its way to be controversial. But if you preach this book. Mm-hmm. You're going to be controversial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, everybody wants to talk, talk, talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I just read the other day where Jesus said, by the way, I came to divide a mom from a daughter and a father from a son. And and I do believe you're right. I think there is a hunger mm-hmm. on the part of many out there. I just want to know what God's word says. On the other hand, we are kidding ourselves to think that if you preach on certain topics, People are going to leave your church. Yep, they are going to leave your church. No matter how you can preach it in the most Christ-like, compassionate way you can. But the moment we talk about you make certain statements, they're out the door. I, I, I don't want this. I don't want to hear this or whatever. So I, I do believe you're right. I think both things are true. I think on the one hand, there is a hunger. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that uh, there are a lot of pastors that you realize, you know what? You may not be the biggest in in town. You may not be the brightest in town. But as Dr. Rogers used to say, I love this statement. I quote him a lot. He said, there are a lot of people that can preach the gospel better than I can, but nobody can preach a better gospel than I can. Hmm. And I think that if preachers will just say, you know, when I stand before God, I'll be honest with you, Preston. If I stand before God, if he at least says to me, James, you did preach the word. I'll be a happy cow. I'm good to go. Hmm. Wow. Well, I we kind of drifted far from your book. Um, I did have some questions about some things in here. Again, how to deal with how you feel. The the one part that really struck me. I mean, a lot, lot of things here. The um, the loneliness piece. I, I dog eared it because I want to come back. Oh yeah, the present state of loneliness. This is uh, on page twenty uh, seventy two seventy three. Well, this is a whole chapter actually on on loneliness. Yeah. What, um, and this is my last question really because I, I got to let you go. But um. What what has created and you've I think you've touched I mean I I kind of think I know what you're going to say but what has how is this an epidemic is it or is this a significant issue that's really stunting people's discipleship this issue of loneliness and then my two prong question is what has in your opinion caused it what is the solution Yeah you know I, I I'll say this may surprise you I think if you're a if you're truly a disciple and you're trying to grow in your discipleship I think you really probably don't have as much of a problem with loneliness as the person that I'm trying to really reach in the book. And that is, I think the biggest problem, and and, and listen, you know this, I'll bet you there are more lonely people in New York City than maybe anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's the largest cities in the world. But I think that loneliness, the real source of loneliness for me is when you're isolated from God. Um, you know, I, I say in the book, if you know Jesus, you may feel lonely, but you're not alone. And so I think the root problem of loneliness today is, is, an, is, is an, you know, we were all born separated from God. And, 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 and that's why God sent Jesus was to break down that barrier of separation that we might be reconciled and have a relationship with God. And, you know, you can be sitting in the middle of a 50,000, uh, you know, you can be sitting in the middle of a football game with 50,000 people. But if you went there by yourself and you don't know one person there, you could feel pretty lonely. Right. At the same time, there is, there is really a comfort. And it's, this is not a ghost thing. There is a comfort to a believer that knows you've got the spirit of God living in you and knowing wherever you go, the Lord is watching over me. The Lord is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And that's why some of the sweetest times you can have as a believer is when you're alone. Mm-hmm. You're not lonely, but you're alone. But you're not alone because you're with him. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I, I just believe that's kind of the but there really is for what I'm studying, there is a there is an epidemic okay. uh, of loneliness in our society today. I really do. And, and by the way, you you listen, I've enjoyed the time. You know, just 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 so you'll know, just I just want what I'd say to people about the book, the one thing I'd say is this. I would almost challenge anybody to 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 pick up just the contents of this book. And you talk about stress, worry, anxiety, depression, fear, loneliness, jealousy, anger, bitterness, or guilt. I guarantee you all of us would pick up that book and go, that's the chapter for me. 
the chapter for me was anger. I talk about that in in the, in the introduction. The chapter was for me for, was for anger. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll leave you with this: as a as a as a, we talk about anger, you know what I'm seeing as much in the church as I've ever seen as a pastor, Preston. I'm seeing of all these emotions, I'm seeing guilt, and I'm seeing bitterness, mm-hmm. unresolved bitterness, and undealt with guilt. And I'm seeing it more and more and more. So, you know, hopefully that, you know, the, the, when you pick up the book, this might be a book you might say, you know, I, I've never been to, I'm a pretty upbeat guy. You know, I've, I've been to this before. Okay. But you know what? I am jealous. By, matter of fact, I'll tell you, one of the biggest things pastors b- battle is jealousy. Pastoral jealousy. We do. Jealous because, of other of other pastors or no better doubt. preachers or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. You want to, why am not, why am I not as big at all? So anyhow, but I, I just appreciate you having me on and I, yeah. I hope people will pick up a copy of the book. Hope it'll be a blessing to them. Well, thanks, James. It's great to see you face to face finally after all these years. So uh, many blessings <laughs> on your, your life and your ministry. And uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Well, just know we're long, we're long distance friends and brothers, and I'm one of your best admirers, buddy. Ah, thank you so much, man. It really means a lot. Appreciate you. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.